Well, good morning again, and welcome to Happy, 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 our ongoing series that way. How's our level of happiness this morning? We doing okay? Yeah, I can see we got some work to do. We're doing a, it's a good thing we're doing this series. Okay, then, yeah. In this series, as you know, we're talking about the fact um, that God has an experience in mind for us, that he wants to provide for us not just a moment, but a life, an abundant life, which is full of the happiness that he actually has designed us to enjoy uh, and to take part in. And so we're trying to find out what does the Bible say about what that happiness looks like and how it is that we may actually go about encountering that. If I was to ask everyone in the room to complete this sentence, I would be truly happy if... And then you bring your own answer to that, right? I would get a lot of answers, but invariably I'd be able to kind of compress those down into a few categories, right? Typically the ones that come up are I would be happy if I was, uh, if I was beautiful and healthy. I would be happy if I was wealthy and successful, right? I'd be happy if I could grow hair now like I could when I was a teenager. <laughs> Something like that. But it might surprise you to find out what it is that the social science researchers have discovered about what it takes to experience happiness with any kind of ongoing consistency. In a recent study, they concluded that the ability to become happy and to remain happy comes down to the way that you answer a single question. And that question is this. Who are you? Who are you is the question. It turns out that your perception and your understanding of who you are plays a huge, huge role in your ability to find happiness and then to hang on to it once you've found it. Because bound up within the answer to that question are the issues of your identity and of your self-esteem and of your value and of your worth. So here specifically is what that study discovered. They discovered that people with a strong sense of identity, with a healthy self-image, people who feel valued and who feel significant, that these people are overwhelmingly happy even, even in the middle of the most difficult circumstances that they come across. But on the other hand, people with a weak sense of identity, people whose sense of self and self-esteem maybe isn't so healthy, maybe people who struggle to feel important or who feel insignificant, that these people are overwhelmingly unhappy even in the very best of circumstances. So the way that you answer the question, who am I, it goes a long, long way towards answering the question, can I really expect to encounter God's happiness and to hang on to it once I've found it? Am I really going to be able to experience the abundant life that Jesus came to give? So, okay, I get that. So if I want to be happy, then I have to have a a healthy self-image and a healthy sense of identity. So the obvious question is, where do I go to get that? Turns out those things aren't as easy to grab hold of as you might think. They're not just lying around on aisle 12, you know, waiting to be picked up. They take some work. So when the topic of conversation was his own identity, Jesus asked his disciples two questions. He asked, who do the people say that I am? And he said also after that, but who do you say that I am? And when the disciples were answering that question, they they answered the first one, just as they've been kind of conditioned to. Well, who do the people say that Jesus is? Well, some of them think that he's, a, he's the kind of reincarnation of John the Baptist or of Elijah or Jeremiah and one of the prophets. That's who the people say that you are. But then he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And when Peter answered that question, he identified Jesus. He clarified Jesus' identity more clearly than anybody else ever had. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Fast forward 2,000 years later to today, when the topic of conversation is our own identity, and we find that those are the two questions that we still need to be asking. Who do people say that I am? And God, who do you say that I am? And those are two very, very different questions, aren't they? And they provide two very, very different answers that results in two very, very different pictures of yourself. You see, there is a massive, huge gap between what the world tells us about who we are and what God, through his word, tells us about who we are. And we, for our part, to understand who we are, we have to choose which voice we're going to listen to. We have to decide which mirror are we going to look into to find out who we really, really are. And that's a choice that you and I get to make on a daily, daily basis. The Apostle Paul understood this choice very clearly. He was writing his letter to the church at Rome, and this is what he wrote. He said, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and his perfect will. You see, there is a pattern to the way that the world forms self-image. And it is a damaging, hurtful, destructive pattern that results in kind of the current epidemic of depression and self-loathing and self-hatred that we see around us. But God says we don't have to follow that pattern. We can be changed. We can be transformed. If we allow him, God will renew our mind and teach us to see ourselves in a whole new way, in a healthier way to understand who we really are a way that will strengthen our self-image and our value and allow us ultimately to experience the abundant life that is his promise, even in difficult times. So in our time this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to do some compare and some contrast to what the world says about who we are and about what God says about who we are. And we'll hold those up like mirrors to look at. And, uh, and then you can decide which reflection produces the most accurate and the healthiest sense of self which leads to the happiness that God intends for us to uh, experience. So comparison number one, here's the idea. The world says, the world says that you are defined by your appearance, by the way that you look. But God says that it's what's on the inside that really, really counts. You see, this world, this culture that we live in, places an absolutely ridiculous value on physical beauty, on external beauty. Study after study after study confirms what we intuitively know, that attractive people, however you define that, tend to do better in school. They tend to get better jobs. They tend to get paid better for equivalent work. They tend to experience advantages that the rest of us don't have. Our culture sends an absolutely clear message that beauty equals value. If you're attractive, you matter. And if you're not, you don't. And it probably doesn't take a rocket scientist, right, to figure out what the impact of that is on people's sense of self-image, on their sense of worth and their sense of their own value. I mean, if you're beautiful, it's a no-brainer. It's not a problem. I'm beautiful. I'm valuable. Easy. But what about the rest of us, the majority? For us, the message is it's inescapable. You don't matter. You don't measure up. You're not as important or as valuable as the better folks are. And that's a, that's a tough sense of self to live with. That I just don't belong with the people who matter. The first girl I ever worked up the courage to ask out 
literally laughed at me while she said, are you kidding me? Of course not. I know, I got over it. It's going to be all right. Her loss, her loss. No. But that sense of feeling like I just don't belong in that league and there's no way that I can get there, that's a terrible, terrible feeling. And it's one that most of us have felt at some time. The message that beauty equals value is destroying an entire generation of young people. And in numbers never before seen, never before seen, young people are coming to the conclusion that if they're not stunningly beautiful, they don't really matter and they'll never amount to anything. And the result is this epidemic of of, uh, low self-esteem and it's directly related to this message, beauty equals value. I read a study that said this, a girl's self-esteem and confidence about who she is peaks, reaches the highest point in her life at age nine. At age nine, that is as good as she will ever feel about who she is and how she looks. And that from age nine onward, her whole self-image tends to decline. Isn't that horrible? I mean, it makes makes me want to just assign all of us. Let's quit church. Let's run downstairs to Kids on the Move ministry, find every girl we can anywhere near nine years old, and just tell her, you are wonderful, you're fantastic, you're great, so that we can at least set the bar high, right? But the message that... Beauty, equal value, beauty equals value just tends to drive from nine years old onward down to this sense that you just don't matter anymore. How about this? In an extended survey of teenage girls about the things that concern them and cause them to worry, girls listed getting fat ahead of other you know, much more trivial things like nuclear war, getting cancer, child starvation, or any of those. The number one concern. How does something as coincidental and fleeting as physical attractiveness becomes such a big deal? How does it become the big deal? Well, right, one thing that comes to mind is just the endless barrage of all the kind of model-perfect images that, that we see on TV and in movies and on billboards and in magazines everywhere. Is it possible, maybe, that these constant barrage of perfect images are somehow skewing the expectations that we have for what... what a woman ought to like and look like and what beauty is? Is it possible that girls who grow up doing thousands of these images every day might end up feeling that they don't make the grade? I think it is. Look, the, the average woman in America is like 5'4 and about 140 pounds. The average model's 5'7 and a buck 14. Right? Those things are not equivalent. The image of beauty that we hold up and present to the young ladies of the, for the young ladies to aspire towards is physiologically unattainable for 99% of them. They're mutants. <laughs> but we parade this group of mutants in front of the eyes of our young girls over and over and again and have the audacity to suggest to the young ladies that if you can just look like that, then you'll matter. Then you'll be valuable. Then you'll be happy. No wonder that after nine years old, they start feeling worse and worse and worse about themselves. And it's not just a young girl's problem because young girls grow up into older girls and and young ladies and women and senior citizens and whatever comes after that. And the pressure to keep looking perfect never goes away. Maybe you're someone who has struggled with your appearance. Maybe you don't love how you look. Maybe you feel like nobody will ever even appreciate or care or like how you look either. Maybe you feel, it, it, maybe you feel like it's 
difficult to believe that somebody who looks like you could ever matter, could ever be important, could ever be significant or happy. And I want to tell you this morning, God sees things differently. He has a different set of values with him. It's not about appearance. It's about what's inside. There's a story in the Old Testament about when it was time for Samuel the prophet to identify the next king. And so he went to this one family that God directed him to, and God had told him, Someone in this fam- one of the sons in this family is, is going to be the king. And so he, just, he brought the sons in one by one, eldest to youngest, and looked at him. He said, man, that's a good-looking guy. Surely this is the one. And God said, no, that's not the one. And then the next one came in and says, oh, this, is, this guy looks great. He's got to be the one. God said, no, that's not the one. He came all the way down to the end to the youngest boy, David, who didn't look nearly as impressive as the others. But Samuel heard the Lord say this, the Lord does not look on the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, right? And so God saw something in David's heart heart that pleased him and so david was the one he selected he instructed samuel don't get caught up in the appearances don't get caught up in the external there's something there in the heart that although you may not even see it i recognize it and that is what's pleasing to me that is what makes people valuable to me what is it on the inside then that matters to god what is it that god sees and pleases him what is it on your insides that make you valuable that make you matter and make you significant Well, the book of Genesis tells us that you, you personally, you specifically and individually were created in the image of God. Who you are in all of its complexity, inside and out, bears an image of who God is. That's significant. But it's not just the image of God. It's also the purpose of God. It's not just that God made you the way you are. It's that the God of the universe has plans for you. Jeremiah 29 has a passage that talks about, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. And we love jumping ahead to the next part, right? Plans to prosper you and not to do you harm. A good plan. I'm going to make things go well for you. And we love to claim that part of the plan. But can we just back up for a second? The God of the universe has a plan for you. He has an idea of what he wants to do in me. The fact that he even notices at all says there's somebody of incredible value. That those plans would be for prospering and for doing good, that's all the better. But, but let's take a moment to appreciate what it means that God knows us and has plans and purposes for us. That is part of what gives us our significance. And it's not just his image, and it's not just his purpose, but it's his presence as well. Because the Bible describes what happens to those who decide to follow Jesus and make him their Lord, is that the Spirit of God actually takes up residence within us. He dwells within us. When, when God looks to believers and sees the Spirit of God living within them, he says, that is something I love to see. That's what makes you valuable. All of that on the inside are the things that God looks to and says, that's why you're important. That's why you matter. We just have to choose which mirror are we going to look at, which voice are we going to listen to. Uh, Cooper mentioned, you know, in a few weeks we're going to do some baptisms. And if that's you and you're going to be signing up, you need to do that quickly because those classes do start this coming week, okay? But that's this celebration of what has taken place on the inside is working itself to the outside. So we're going to do something on the outside, dunk them in water and raise them back up because it represents something that's happened already on the inside where it matters. That God has taken an old life and made it new. That he's taken a sinful heart and he's made it clean. Those are things that happen on the inside first where it matters. That's where God looks. Comparison number two. 
The world says that you're defined by your performance. But God says it's his grace that really counts. This is really clear in the business world, isn't it? If, uh, if you're an asset, if you can raise the bottom line, if you can outperform the expectations, then you're valuable and you're successful and you get promoted. But if you make a couple of poor decisions, if you fail to improve the bottom line, if you struggle to meet expectations, then you're dead weight. You don't bring any value to the organization and you're subject to being dismissed. That's the harsh world that we live in. But that's not limited just to the business world either. Brides and grooms come into their marriages with all kinds of expectations, right, about how their new spouse should behave. Expectations about how well will he provide for her. Expectations about how strongly will she support him. How understanding will he be. How forgiving will she be. And that list goes on and on and on. And when when husband and wife, when the performance level is high and they're doing great, then the husband and the wife are the most valuable thing in the world to one another. But what happens when the husband or the wife, or maybe even both of them, are not performing so well? They're not doing such a great job. Suddenly they're not so wonderful. Suddenly they're not so lovable. Suddenly they don't seem so valuable. And in some measure, the the terrible success rate that we see in marriages, and it's as troubling in the church as it is outside of the church, but it's due in part to a mindset that says, my spouse's value to me is determined by how well that they perform. If they do their job well, then they're valuable to me, but if they don't do their job well, then they're not valuable to me, and I reserve the right to walk away at that point. See, the world tends to identify a person's value with whether or not they perform highly enough uh, up against expectations. And that leads you to like these make-or-break moments. Have you ever had those make-or-break moments You know, maybe it was a big, huge final exam that your whole semester grade was going to rest on, and if you were going to pass the class or get that scholarship, you had to get an A. Maybe it was a job interview for the dream job or a big business presentation. Maybe it was an actual performance at a play or a recital or something. But do you remember how amped up you were because of how important it was to perform well in that very narrow and focused place? How much preparation, how much energy, how much focus, how much time went into all of that? Knowing that if I just perform well enough, if I, if I just do my job well enough in those key moments, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to be valued, and maybe then I have a chance of being happy. I remember uh, as a freshman when it came to try out uh, for the ba- time to try out for the basketball team. And I wanted nothing more in all the world than to be on that team. And so, you know, they held two weeks of practices where they were evaluating, evaluating everyone, seeing where they were, assessing their skill sets, and seeing who was going to make the team. And so <clears throat> for two weeks... I was just consumed with my performance, with my performance on the court, with thinking about performance off the court. It was everything that was going on in my life for two weeks. Do you know how many hours there are in two weeks? There are 336 hours, and I know because I spent every one of them fretting and worrying and caring about my performance uh, in those tryouts. And by the time the tryouts were done, I was exhausted. And it had nothing to do with running up and down the basketball court. It had everything to do with the amount of energy and focus and emotion it took to live at that level that my every thought, my every action, my every deed is under constant scrutiny and I'm just one mistake away from missing the team, not being on the squad and maybe you know having my whole life go down the tubes because of it. That's a terrible, terrible feeling and it's a terrible, terrible way to live. But I'll be honest, when I look around very often, I see people who are living this life like it's an 80-year-long tryout for heaven. 
Like every moment I'm being assessed. Every piece of my life performance is being graded. And when I get to the end, if I've performed perfectly enough over the course of my 80 years or whatever in this life, then maybe I'll make the team in heaven. Maybe I'll get the heaven jersey. Sounds weird to say it out loud that way, but I'd be willing to guess that most of us, at least at some point along the way, have entertained those thoughts and have felt similarly about the life that we're leading. Like, I just got to keep doing better and better and better and better. The world tells us that our value and our significance and our standing emerges from how well we perform in some particular area. But what does God say about how our performance is related to our value? Well, God would say it's not related. It's not related at all. For God, the performance that we bring to the table is nothing more than an introduction to the grace that he's going to bring to the table. Our performance at its very best And even at its very worst, it's all just an introduction to what really matters, which is God bringing grace to the table and saying, I'm not really so concerned about how well you did. I I just want to pour out my love on you and, and hope that you will receive that. And man, if we have spent our whole life trying to perform and trying to achieve just to become settled that I'm good enough so that I can be happy, and someone says, I'm going to love you whether you perform well or not. I'm I'm not going to fail you even if you're not doing a great job. What a relief that is. What What a point of just entering into rest that we can experience. Paul wrote this. He said, it's for by grace that you have been saved. Through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. This happens not by works so that no one can boast. We're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. How do we become okay? How do we become settled about how God sees us and who we really are? Well, we have to choose. What does the world tell us? Or what does God tell us? The world tells us if you want to be, you're going to have to earn it. And God says, I just want to give it. Comparison number three. The world says that you're defined by your failures. But God offers freedom and forgiveness from them. We've all blown it, right? We've all made mistakes. We failed the people who loved us most at some point along the way, God included. And the world tells us that we are our failures, that it's our failures that identify us. They take our real-life mistakes and our errors, and they print out a little name tag and pop it on us that says loser or cheater or gossip or liar or addict. That's my collection. I don't know about your collection. Yours may look a little different than that. But our failures then become our identity. And before long, it's not just that I'm a loser. It's that I've always been a loser, and I always will be a loser. It's not just that I am an addict. It's that I'm always going to be an addict, and that there's no hope. I am my failure, and failure becomes my identity. And let me tell you, there is no lasting sense of self-worth or any happiness in that. But fortunately, that's what the world says that we are. Fortunately, God meets our failures with forgiveness and with freedom. He says, that may be who you have been. That may even be who you are right now, but that is not who I created you to be, and that is not who you have to be. I died to set you free from what you have been and what you are so that you can be who you're supposed to be. I can set you free which is why Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. He makes us new. 
He makes us new. There is a hope looking forward. We are not defined by the places we've blown it in the past. There is hope that the things that bind us and addict us here and now are things that God will set us free from so that we can be set free to walk into the, to the happiness and the joy and the eternity that he has in mind. There's a passage as Paul, uh, elsewhere in, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and I love it because it describes, he's talking to the church and that particular church, and he says this to, you, to them. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So he's talking to a group of believers who are anticipating inheriting the kingdom of God, right? That's their plan. That's their understanding of who they are. He says, But there are wrongdoers, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And as it sits there, it's just a list of things that you're not supposed to do. And I don't want to get too wrapped up in that. I actually want to go to the next part that's really the most important. He says, and that is what some of you were. I'm talking to a group of believers who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. But understand that, that this group of people who are moving forward and are going to inherit the kingdom of God came from places of real brokenness. And I'm sure that some of those sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, men having sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, swindlers, I'm sure that all of them at one point said, there's no hope for me. That's just, I am what I am. I'm greedy. I'm a drunk. But God says, look back. Look back. You you were that. I set you free from that. That may be your past, and for some it may be your present, but that is not your future. You are not defined by the places that you have come up short. You can be defined, defined by the power of God's forgiveness and by the freedom that he offers you to leave those things behind and step into the world that he's designed for you. Who do people say that you are? Who does God say that you are? That's two questions. Two different mirrors. They'll provide two very, very, very different pictures of who you are. And those will affect your sense of identity, value, self-worth. If you pick the right mirror, if you listen to the right voice, it leads towards the abundant life and the happiness that God created us to enjoy. We have a choice. Which question will we listen to? What does does the world say? What does God say about who you are? Which one do you think will produce a happiness that can last? Let's go ahead and pray. God, I I just, I love that passage in 1 Corinthians. That passage that encourages me just to look back at at my life and what was before and say, yeah, God, I'm, that's what I was. And, And by your grace and by your forgiveness, by your love, God, my own personal testimony is just that you set me free from those things. And though I'm not perfect, I've been set free from those things that I was. 
And God, all of us here, at one level or another, know we are not now what you have designed us to be. We are not yet now um, reaching the potential that you knit into the very fabric of our identity. God, for us as a people, would you, would you help us to let go of those things in our life that really damage how we see ourselves? God, when the world sends us these different messages of who we are and how we don't measure up and how we're not valuable and how uh, we're just not achieving enough, God, when we, when we encounter those, would you open our, our mind? Would you remind us, God, that that's not how you see us, that that's not necessarily real, but that what's most real more than anything else is your love for us. What's most real is that you speak to us and call us by name with a purpose as if we are valuable and you invest real, lasting value and worth in us. God, for all of us, would you silence in us those voices that tell us that we're worthless and insignificant? And God, would you just help us to hear the voice of the God of the universe saying you're precious. You're my child and I love you enough to die for you. Help us, God, to accept that and walk forward full of your joy and full of your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.